Good evening. It was at this church about 12 years ago that I started to fall in love with the Word of God. And so I started to fall deeper in love with the God of the Word. And When I first came to Calvary, I used to sit way in the back where some of you were sitting back there. And gradually over time, I began to work my way to the front. Before you know it, I was enrolled in the School of Ministry. So for those of you in the back, if you start moving forward, who knows where you might end up. I was on staff here for nearly 10 years, first as the youth pastor, then as the missions pastor, and I have incredibly fond memories of serving you here through this church, and it's a great honor for me tonight to serve you again through teaching. Let's pray. God, I love this church, and more importantly, you love this church. In fact... You purchased the people in this church with the blood of your Son. Lord, thank you for feeding me through this fellowship over the years and and for feeding thousands. And Lord, you fed me not, not only with words and not only with sermons, but with your very presence. And Lord, tonight as I teach, I pray that it would not just be words that we're fed with, Lord, we pray that you would feed us with your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're a note-taker, I've entitled this message, Risking It All. We're obviously going to talk about risk tonight. Webster's Dictionary defines adventure as an undertaking usually involving danger and unknown risks. An exciting or remarkable experience. I think you'd all agree that Christ calls us to a life of incredible adventure, right? In fact, when Scripture is properly understood, what becomes clear is that He calls us to take serious, deliberate, and even dangerous risks in order to advance His kingdom. Almost every message of our consumer comfort culture of America tells us exactly the opposite. And so by and large, we reject risk. Even in the church, we reject risk. In America, we even have a name for this comfortable, risk-free life. We call it the good life or the American dream. And I've discovered that there is little room in this dream for a life of risk and sacrifice and suffering for Christ. We tell our young people, go to school, get an education, obtain a degree, get a career, have a family, buy a house, get some cars, maybe a boat. Retire early and spend the rest of your life traveling across the country in your RV, collecting stickers, thimbles, or spoons, or playing golf. This is the ultimate that life in America can give you. This is the best that life has to offer. And it's sad, but this life-destroying pursuit of smooth and easy living is alive and well in the church. And you and I are not immune to its numbing power. Our love affair with safety has unfortunately caused many churches to shrink back 
from truly becoming great commission churches. I saw this vividly after the events of 9-11. Over and over I heard Christians say, we just can't travel anymore. It's just not safe anymore. I heard parents say, my kid's not going on a mission trip, not in this day and age. It's not safe. One Christian mother came to me and she smugly said, there's no way my son is going to South America. Until he's 18, he's mine. The world is just too dangerous. As if to say that he wasn't God's quite yet. And what made this story so sad was this this young man came home with great excitement about his heart to reach out to those less fortunate than himself and he doubtless met with resistance. This is not going to be an easy message. But it's one that I need to hear. It's one that we need to hear. Listen, for the record, doing missions has never been safe. It's just that after the events of 9-11, it's more obvious to us than ever before. Jesus is simply not a safe man to follow. Period. End of story. He never has been a safe man to follow. Look at Matthew 10 with me, verses 34 through 49. we see that he said some radical, shocking things about following him. He said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I know what you're thinking. It's Christmas time. We just sang about the angels who said, Peace on earth, goodwill to men, right? And yet he says, I did not come to bring peace on earth. You see, he didn't come to bring external peace. He came to bring internal peace. He goes on to say, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Clearly, in this verse, we discover that Christ wants supremacy within our hearts. He wants to be Lord and Master. He wants to be over and above everyone and everything else. And it's precisely in seeking that lordship within us that he proves his love to us. Because it says... At verse 39, that if you seek after your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. He knows that the only way we'll ever truly discover what life is really all about is if he rules and reigns upon the throne of our hearts. But he wants all of us. Os Guinness said, there is not an inch of any sphere of life over which Jesus Christ does not say Mine. But to be totally and radically His may even put us at odds with our family members. In fact, it may disturb the peace. Some of you know that. Jesus is not a safe man to follow. 
Remember that he didn't end up on the cross accidentally. The cross was not an afterthought for a world that had gone bad. It's not as if God the Father said, What have I done? These creatures are selfish. They're going to destroy themselves. I've got to devise a plan. It says in Scripture that he was slain from the foundations of the earth. He knew full well what we would do. And he had a plan long in advance. Slain from the foundations of the earth. Which means, if you think about it, Christ deliberately put himself on the cross through calculated choices. He deliberately put himself on the cross through calculated choices. It's not safe to follow someone who orchestrated their own death. Is it? It's not safe to model your life after a man who embraced risk like Christ did. Let me say as a father, I am not indifferent or insensitive to the concerns of parents or loved ones who have felt fear because of the dangers associated with doing missions or doing ministry work. And I've never condoned any type of rebellion or disrespect towards parents who said don't go. In fact, I told students over the years when we ran Lifeline Mission, you honor your mom and dad. You obey them. God put them there. You love them and you pray for them. But when I would hear those things, I have to tell you, I cringed inside. Thinking, I wonder if a well-meaning parent could be the very obstacle from this child walking in the fullness of God's purposes. And a question often came to my mind, and I only asked it in my mind, mind you. But I would say to myself, whoever said your children would be safe in the call of God? Where did you learn that? Who taught you that, I wondered. I once heard Robertson McQuilk, and he's an incredible mission sage. He's 74 years old, and he's still going strong today for the cause of Christ. He said, Christian parents are one of the primary reasons why some of the best missionary candidates never make it to the field. And though they say it's about concern for their children, it's more likely that it's concern for themselves. You see, the pervasive message of our luxury-loving society is this. Maximize your comfort and your safety. Play it safe. Acquire stuff. Accumulate things. And above all else, take care of yourself. And often the advertisers' flattery and sweet lies lead believers to trade the kingdom of God for the shadow of the American dream. You know what I've discovered about the American dream? It makes us dull and timid. And it makes us bored. It makes us consumed with self-preservation rather than kingdom expansion. I'm not anti-American, not by any means, but folks, Christ does not dream the American dream. He dreams a kingdom dream. This may shock you, but as I've studied Scripture, I can't find any promises of temporary safety. But what I have discovered is that He promised us an abundant life 
an ecstatic eternity of never-ending, ever-increasing joy, but never temporary safety. Listen to his strong words for every timid Christian who's wavering on the edge of some dangerous kingdom adventure. Luke 12, verse 4. Fear not, you can only be killed. Fear not, you can only be killed. Did you hear that? How insensitive. It's exactly what he said. Allow me to paraphrase his words. Don't reject risks. They can only kill you. You can only lose your life. Don't be afraid. They can only take off your head. They can only burn you alive. How could he say something like that? Imagine telling a soldier going off to war, Son, the worst thing that could happen to you is you could die. How could Christ say, Fear not, they can only kill you. You see, he removed eternal risk. When Christ rose from the dead, he removed eternal risk. Not temporary risks, but eternal risks. And in doing so, he delivered us from the fear of death. I want to look at this in detail. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Christ removed eternal risk in three ways. The incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and we see them all in this passage here in Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says, Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that's us, we have flesh and blood, we're humans, we have skin and bones, he himself likewise shared in the same. We just celebrated that, didn't we? The incarnation. He shared in the same. God uncreated, infinite, became a baby and wrapped himself in skin. It says that through his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He calls the fear of death bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that's a fancy word for substitute, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Let's break this down. God became a man. If he was going to die for man, he had to become a man. He had to be a suitable sacrifice. He also became a man because he could not die in his divine state. He was indestructible. If God is to die, he has to become vulnerable. He has to become fragile. And so he becomes a man. And it says that he met the righteous requirements of the priesthood. 
He fulfilled the law. He met every single requirement of the Father. He did not compromise, not even in the slightest. He pleased the Father in every way. And then he goes to the cross deliberately, intentionally. Don't blame it on Rome. Some blame it on the Jews. God was orchestrating the whole thing. He was taking his own life. And then we know that he rises from the dead. So he becomes a suitable sacrifice. He lives the life that we could never live. We've all blown it, right? No one is good, no, not one. But he's perfect. And in his life, he becomes our law keeper. He meets the righteous requirements of the law. He lives the life that you and I could never live. And when we trust in him, the father credits to us the righteousness, the perfection of his son. Propitiation, substitution. And then he dies. And in his death, he becomes our curse bearer. In living, he's our law keeper. In dying, he's our curse bearer. And the father pours out the fullness of his wrath. Upon his very own son. He holds back none of his anger over sin. And he punishes Christ in our place. And again, when we trust in Christ, the Father transfers our sin to Christ's account. And he makes us free and clear. You see, we're not forgiven because God just forgets. Or he just scoops our sin underneath the cosmic rug and says, I I didn't see that. He preserves justice by punishing our sin in his own son. And then he rises from the dead, the resurrection. When Christ rose from the dead, he removed eternal risk. You see, what made death so scary was not just death itself. If there was no such thing as hell, death would be sad. But it wouldn't be scary. What made death so terrifying was dying in sins meant eternal separation from the love of God. When Christ rose from the dead, he conquered death and he delivered us from the bondage of the fear of death. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Because Christ dealt with sin, because he kept the law for us, death was something that Paul mocked. He pokes fun at death. Verse 55, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? He's mocking death. I'm not afraid of you anymore, death. The sting of death is sin. There it is. And the strength of sin is the law. Christ dealt with sin. He kept the law for us. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now consider the context of that. He says, death, I'm not afraid of you anymore. Christ is my law keeper, my curse bearer. Sin has been dealt with on my account. And then he says, abound in God's work. He says, don't fall back from the trials of kingdom work. The dangers associated with doing God's work. Be steadfast, immovable. For the believer, the final risk is gone. The wrath of God is taken away. Satan's final weapon has been removed. What was his final weapon? Unforgiven sin. That was his last weapon. That's what he had against us. To die in sins is to lose everything. It is to face an eternity in conscious, terrifying torment. But to die in forgiveness, to die in Christ, is to gain everything. So people can kill us, they can mock us, they can taunt us, but they cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, Paul says, Nothing, absolutely nothing, can take away our place in heaven. Go backwards to Romans 8. Paul talked about this a lot because it was a big deal to him. Romans 8, you're all familiar with the passage, I'm sure. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, or tsunami. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, maybe your version says convinced, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For believers, the threat of death becomes for us a door to paradise. Because the fear of temporal risk is broken, we are freed by God to be loving risk takers. Loving adventure seekers. Because eternal risk has been removed. Temporary risk doesn't hold the fear that it used to. And so we can love people even though it might be dangerous to do so. We can go to places no one else would go because they need Christ and we're not afraid to do so. Because... This threat of death was removed. Paul said a lot of crazy countercultural things. Kind of like his master. In Philippians 1.21, he says something that I would say borders counterhuman. He says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's a whole new perspective. I recently 
I was reading a little bit about Lance Armstrong. What a remarkable man. Conquered about with cancer. The only man who has won the Tour de France six consecutive times. He said in this piece that I was reading, When I was sick, I didn't want to die. When I race, I don't want to lose. Dying and losing is the same thing. And my heart sunk when I read that. He's right. To to die in sins, to die without faith in Jesus Christ is losing. But to die in Christ is something entirely different. If you have Christ, death has no uncertainty. There is no sting in death anymore. Can Compare what he said, Lance Armstrong, to what Paul said. It's exactly the opposite. Paul said to die in Christ is not losing, it's winning. It's to gain my Savior. How is death gain? Paul says because to die means to be with Christ, which he says is very much better. I like that translation. It's very much better. When Jesus revealed to us the amazing promise of eternal joy, what he did is he unleashed us to be loving risk takers like Paul. And completely unlike the radical Muslims who took away life on September 11th, Jesus calls us to risk our lives to love and not to kill. Yes, we are called to risk, but to love, not to kill. The only risk Christ permits are the perils and the dangers of love. Yes, to die perhaps, but to die loving, to die giving. Consider the early church with me. Perhaps you've read Fox's book of martyrs. Anyone read that book? It's hard to get through. Page after page of martyrdom in detail. Death was normal for the fledgling church. It was to be expected. To be a Christian or to be a Christian leader was not in vogue or cool. It was downright dangerous. Hundreds and thousands gave up their lives... Pastors' faces were not on crusade posters, meeting posters. They were on wanted posters. They were villains. They were criminals. And Rome was killing them. Why did so many of them give up their lives? Because they knew what Paul knew. They knew that to die was to gain Christ. To be absent in their bodies was to be present with Jesus. Yes, following Christ had cost them. Some of them their possessions, some of them their lives, but the one thing that it did not cost them was their joy. And did you know that loving risk takers are giving their lives today in greater numbers than ever before all around the world? I read somewhere that in the last 50 years, there's been more martyrs than in all of church history combined. People all around the world, in Saudi Arabia, in Sudan, in Indonesia, giving up their lives 
for Christ before they would renounce Him because they know this promise. The risks have not grown smaller for believers. They've grown larger. I think you sense it even here in our country, don't you? The risks associated with being a Christian are not going down. They're going up. You see, I believe we live in an unusual season of grace in this country. Paul said, the righteous will be persecuted. We're only 6% of the world's population, folks. Most Christians today, their lives are at risk every time they get out of bed. They're giving up their lives because the risks are growing larger. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, somewhat of a contemporary martyr, he gave his life in World War II for his faith. Before he was martyred, he said, The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is not new. Jesus told us all along that this is the way it would be, that this is what it meant to follow Jesus. Turn with me to John 12. He told us from the beginning what it meant to follow him. Verse 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, Let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a seed. For some believers, that means a literal death. For some, it means dying to self on a daily basis. For all, it means that. But in varying degrees, we are called to lay down our lives depending on where we're at in the world and what's going on. But Jesus said, life comes through death. Now, there's a measure of risk that's inherent to life. It's a risk to get out of bed because you might trip on your kids' Christmas toys and crack your head open. It's a risk to eat food. It might be contaminated. You might choke. My wife says it's a risk every time she gets in the car with me. There's inherent risks that come along with being human. Just, you're here and things could happen. Here's the point I want to make. Safety is an illusion. It's an illusion. 9-11 proved that, didn't it? 
The tsunamis prove that. Columbine. Notice what Jesus says in John 12, 26. He says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. There's some choices to be made here. These are not just the passive risks that are associated with being here, alive. He's talking about something else. You see, not only should we not reject risk for Christ, but we should relish risk for Christ. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Consider the context of the passage. Where is Jesus going? Look at the context. He's going to Gethsemane. He's going to be in anguish and he's going to sweat drops of blood. He's going to be beaten with the Roman flagellum. His flesh removed from his back, maybe organs being exposed. He's going to Golgotha to die and to be separated from the Father while our sins are placed upon him. He's going to suffer. And so, what he's saying here is not just listen if things go bad. If life gets hard, if it gets a little bit bumpy, don't worry since you've already died to yourself and you have a place in heaven anyway. He is saying, choose Calvary. Choose the way I have chosen. Follow me to the cross. Hate your life in this world the way I have chosen to die. Be deliberate about taking risks. Relish them for my sake. Do you see it? There's choices to be made here to move towards risk. What's the point of all this risk taking? Aimless self punishment? Risk for the sake of risk? No. Life. Fruit. Look at 1224. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain, fruit. Our aim in dying is life, to magnify the worth of God in this world. Our aim in dying is to make others glad in the gospel. If it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, I don't want you to miss and interpret or misunderstand this message. I do not pray for more martyrdom. I pray for those who are suffering. I pray that they'd be delivered. I pray that if they would not be delivered, that they would suffer well and they would, they would die in a way that honors the Lord's name. But I don't pray for more martyrdom. Nor do I think any believer should ever take foolish risks. Listen, if you live in Saudi Arabia or Jordan, or Syria, and you decide to wear a sandwich signboard that says, signboard that says, get right or get left, turn or burn, Jesus saves, that's dumb. That's stupid. You're asking for it. The risks I'm talking about 
write it down, if not in your tablet, in the tablet of your heart, calculated, prayerful, Christ-exalting risks. Calculated, prayerful, Christ-exalting risks. The reason I feel like I need to share this message is because, as I said earlier, the price of being a Christian is rising in the world, not diminishing. We live in a great time. God is unveiling the mystery of his will on earth in an incredible way today. But it's not going to get easier for us, folks. It's going to get harder. Even with good old George in office, the Christian rights that we often take for granted in this country are disappearing. It's not getting safer to call yourself a Christian. It's becoming more dangerous. We shouldn't be surprised at this because Jesus said that the risks would rise. Matthew 24, backwards now. Verse 9. Well, actually, go up to verse 4 for me. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations will rise, excuse me, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of what? Sorrows. It's happening. These are end times that we live in. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Now we read that living in America and then we say... That's not happening right now. But think yourself into the position of a believer in Sudan. You read that verse a little differently, don't you? They will kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and they will be offended Many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The risks associated with calling yourself a follower of Christ are growing. So what do you do? If that's the world you live in, how do you respond? And this is the essence of this whole message. If you listen to anything, hear this. You choose now. To voluntarily take risks for Christ so that you will be ready when you have no choice. You choose now 
to voluntarily lay down your life, even in small ways, some of you in big ways, for the sake of Christ. So that you will be ready to take risks for Him when you have no choice. Hebrews 13.13 is a great passage. I love the heart of this early church. The writer says, Let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Outside the camp means outside the borders of comfort and safety. Outside the camp means outside the walls of our churches and the walls of our country. Outside the camp are the sheep that are not of this fold. Outside the camp are the unreached, the hidden, the Bibleist peoples of this world. And outside the camp, the lost sheep will be costly to reach. The risks will be great. But to this we are called. So let us go forth to Christ outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Folks, you must get this. The Great Commission will not be finished without martyrs. Without risk takers. That's how it's going to happen. That's how the kingdom is going to advance. And churches will not make Jesus Christ look like our all-sufficient and all-satisfying treasure if we have the same values and priorities and lifestyles as everyone around us has. He won't look great. He won't look wonderful. He won't look more precious than our things and than our lives. Unless we become a lot more radical in the risks we take and the suffering that we embrace, why should anyone believe that our treasure is in heaven? Why should anyone believe that our treasure is in Christ and that He is more precious than anything we have? Even our breath. Doing missions today might cost us all that we have. For some of you, a handful, if you feel called to the frontier, it might cost you your life. Because the places that need the gospel the most, they're not real thrilled about you coming in. But this idea of a closed country was foreign to Paul. He went anyway because he knew Christ was worthy to be proclaimed. Doing missions might cost you a lot of your stuff, your money, your possessions. Advancing the kingdom today is very costly, but it will not cost you your happiness. Or your joy. In fact, it may be the very pathway to finding it. Remember, he said, whoever loses his life for my sake finds it. 
I think some of the best joy available to believers this side of heaven comes when we move towards risk for the sake of the gospel. And the reason we don't do it is because we're afraid to lose, lose the temporary thrill that we get from things, but we know that it's just fading. I don't s- preach this message to scare you or to move you away from risks. It, it's to move you towards risk because I believe in the moving towards risk for Christ is where your fulfillment lies. It's where great joy lies. What does it take to build a Great Commission church in this day and age? Risk. It takes risk. I want to close by giving you an acronym so that you can put this message in your pocket and go home and pray about it and ask God if I'm crazy or not. The R in risk is rebel against the world order that says accumulate, possess, get stuff, The world order that says having is being. Folks, being in Christ is having. Teach your family, your kids, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, teach your grandkids. It's better to give than it is to get. It's better. Again, that paradox. Jesus says, I'm trying to lead you to fulfillment. That's why I'm telling you to give. You think by hanging on to your stuff, you're going to get happy, but it's better to give than it is to get. Teach them about self-denying generosity. Here's a thought under this rebelling against the world order. Prove to the world that Christ is more precious than your possessions. Show them. See, what happens when Christians are large-hearted and generous and they give to the cross of Christ... Unbelieving people look on and they go, wait a second. You're kind of cavalier about your stuff and your money. I love money. Without money, I I wouldn't have any happiness, but you're just so happy and you give it all away. See, you're proving that God is more precious than your possessions. So rebel against the world order. Number two. Inspire others by your courageous example. And what I have in mind here is time and action. Visit the poor and the sick in Albuquerque. See, I'm not not suggesting you all need to go to the field. Visit the poor and sick in Albuquerque. Mom and Dad, you want to have fun? Visit convalescent homes with your toddlers. Watch them hold the old lady's hands. Time and action. Making others glad in God. You know, it's risky to go in those places. They smell of urine. And vomit. But I'll tell you what, God is in those places. Inspire others by your courageous example. Go to the prisons. You can do it right here at home. 
Maybe for some of you it means going on a mission trip. Maybe just to Juarez for two or three days. Maybe overseas for two weeks. And I know people will say, you're crazy. Because I remember my first trip in 1993 where believers told me, you're nuts. There's a lot of work to be done here. Don't go over there. Go on a trip. Just one. See what God does. Go to Juarez. Look for an overseas trip. There's a lot of opportunities. On this note of inspiring others by your example, you don't have to turn there. I just want to draw your attention to 1 Peter 3.15. It's a great passage that really brings to light this idea of Christian example. Peter says, In your heart set apart Christ as Lord. So he's Lord. He rules and reigns. He's supreme in your life. And he says, Always... Be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the hope that you now have. You see, if someone's going to ask you, where'd you get your hope from? They have first got to identify that you have different values and priorities. Do you see what I'm saying? Courageous feats for Christ will make people say, where'd you get your hope from? I would never do something that has risk involved in it. I wouldn't go to those places. When you do those courageous feats, it makes people say, where'd you get your hope from? The S in risk is sacrifice to the point of pain. And I have to really stress this. It will not gain you merit or favor with God, folks. That's not the idea here. Whether it's time or money, this year try giving to the point that it hurts simply because Jesus Christ is worthy. Not because you have to, you don't. But because he's worthy. And Kay, and I'm going to get in trouble for this one, but alas... K is kill the lie of the American dream. I love America. I'm so glad that I was born here. I'm so glad that I heard the gospel as a little, little boy. I'm so glad. What I have in mind here is this idea that the ultimate in life is a successful career followed by resting and playing for the last lap before you make it into heaven. Don't get me wrong, nothing wrong with success. Nothing wrong with having things as long as they don't have you. Nothing wrong with success. In fact, for some of you, the application of this message is to make as much money as you possibly can. Because God has raised you up to be a financier of the kingdom. To give to the cause of Christ, to see that the gospel goes forward. What I mean by killing the lie of the American dream is this. Don't take your cues from our culture. Does that make sense? Don't take your cues from our culture about what is right and what is wrong. This is your constitution. What does God say? What does God say? 
Contrary to popular opinion, the American dream is not synonymous with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is much better. A well-known pastor said, Most people slip by in life without a passion for God, spending their lives on trivial diversions, living for comfort and pleasure, and perhaps trying to avoid sin. Don't get caught up in a life that counts for nothing. Live and die boasting in the cross of Christ and making his glory your singular passion. Don't waste your life. Folks, a man or woman who is unafraid to die who is willing to take risks for the name above all names is downright dangerous. Oh, to God that this would be a church of men, women, and children who love Jesus Christ and his gospel more than their stuff, more than their possessions, even more than their very own lives. May this be a congregation of loving risk takers. Let's pray. Father, the words of your son are, they're often really hard to swallow. (laughs) We pray that you would give us grace and mercy that we might receive your words tonight. We pray that there would be a harvest in our lives. Lord, the writer of Hebrews, in talking of death and the fear that's associated with it, spoke about bondage. Lord, deliver us from the fear of death. Not so so that we'll be foolish idiots, but so that we'll be loving risk-takers, Lord. We want your kingdom to come in us and through us. So, Lord, help us. Stay in an attitude of prayer for a minute. With a message like this dealing with the subject of death, I, I want to extend an invitation to those of you here tonight. The reason you fear death is because your sins have not been dealt with yet. Christ is not yet your law keeper or your curse bearer, and you are terrified. You're here tonight and you want to trust in Him, in the life that He lived, in the death that He died, so that you can be delivered from this bondage of the fear of death, with the fear of death.